the CU 2.0 podcast. Come 2025, and what do you think the biggest financial institutions will be? Try this on for an answer. Tech companies. That's the answer offered by futurist Thomas Fry in the CU 2.0 podcast. This is your host, Robert McGarvey. It's a wide-ranging podcast with a lot of provocative ideas. Gloomy, gloomy, gloomy thoughts, particularly for the car business, and if you're writing a lot of car loans, you sure want to focus on that. Discussion about why it is that credit unions and banks are losing the mortgage business. It has to do with technology, not keeping pace with technology. Do you know how many banking deserts there are in the United States? About 1,100, according to Fry, who quotes a number from the Fed. The interesting thing about that is those banking deserts represent great opportunities for the financial institutions that figure out a way to tap into them, to serve them. Mobile banks, for instance, we talk about that. It's futurist talk, but it gives you a lot of clues about what you should be thinking about as you plan your institution's future, assuming your institution has a future, because a lot of banks, a lot of credit unions probably have a pretty gloomy future. Dystopian? Yeah, maybe. Real? Yeah, certainly. There are ways out. There are ways to win this. Fry offers some really optimistic ways to attack the problems in front of us. It's up to you to listen to this. It's up to you to come up with an action plan. Good luck. I just, uh, this morning, watched on YouTube your uh, uh, co-op think speech from last year and gloomy as you were about banking you were vastly gloomier about the future of the car industry as we know it <laughs> and and that directly impacts financial institutions because every day i see press releases from credit unions bragging about how many more auto loans they're writing. And isn't this great? But what you're saying is, hey, dude, enjoy it while you can because those auto loans are going away uh, pretty much completely. Yeah, that's what it looks like to me, although it will take time. I don't know, it's two to three decades, maybe. I mean, it's, it's a long transition period. One thing to keep in mind is just last year, just last year, we reached 10% e-commerce. You know, that's it's essentially taken 25 years to reach 10%. That means 10% of all uh, retail sales happen online. Now, a lot of people think that we're much higher than that right now, but we're only at 10%. And if you think about this idea of what it, what it would look like to reach 100% e-commerce, that means there would be no restaurants, no bars, no coffee shops, no place to go out and do anything. So we're, we're never going to go uh, 100%. And so I, I wrote a paper recently on this topic of when do we reach um, peak e-commerce? And uh, I, I think that's such a fascinating concept because I think there's a barrier there. I think we, 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 we can't cross it. I mean, it's if you would have talked to somebody in the late 1990s, the, the tech people, thinking about the internet, that it was going to take 25 years to reach 10% e-commerce, they would have laughed you out of the room because they were so convinced that bricks and mortar was dead, that Main Street USA was going to dry up and blow away. And so it's it's looking vastly different today. I mean, the, the big e-commerce giant Amazon is now opening physical stores. In, 2000, in 2001, I wrote a book called howto.com 
And I think by 2003, uh, 90% of the companies profiled in that book uh, were bust. Uh-huh. It's not that they were struggling, they were out of business. The initial enthusiasm and all, all the IPOs and whatnot turned to dust, essentially. Yeah, so if you, if you think about the car, the car world, you ask the same question, is it going to take 25 years for us to reach 10% autonomous vehicles on the road? Maybe. Maybe it takes 25 years to reach 10%, but those 10% might, might indeed be carrying 80% of all passenger traffic. And so, and so there's different ways of looking at it. All of this, I mean, we're running into adoption barriers because people can only handle so much change. Well, that, that's, that's an excellent point. When you said it's going to take two to three decades for this stuff to sort out, and you were talking specifically about autonomous cars, yeah. uh, it put me in mind of a conversation I had with a credit union CEO whom I know pretty well, and I asked him what his core system was. The core system for a credit union or for a bank is it's essentially his brain. It's accounting system. And he told me, and I said, why, why are you using that junk? And he said, yeah, I know it's junk, but... I'm going to retire in a year or two, and I believe I'm going to leave, leave the choice of a replacement to my successor because he'll have to live with it. I'll be gone. And <laughs> if you look at the pool of CEOs of credit unions, they'll be 100% gone within 20 years, probably. So why think about this stuff today? Let's leave it for the next guy. To hell with it. <laughs> it's so you know why should I, why should I rattle my little brain and become scared by this stuff? So that's a question. Why should they? Um, well, if they want the institution to survive, I mean, it, it has to do with their personal legacy because if, if the business doesn't survive, then they really can't point to anything that's a, a lasting legacy on their part. I don't know. There's, there's, there's systems that, that we have to have surviving in our, just for humanity's sake, the way the, the world works around us, the way our society functions and works. And, and we, we, have, we have the potential for major things to go wrong because we become more and more dependent on technology. And as we become more and more dependent, we create more breaking points. And these breaking points then can create this domino effect that just throws us back to the Stone Age. Uh, naturally, we, in our office, sometimes we talk about a huge solar flare or a large EMP blast or something that just really just wipes out all of our, our networks. And does that take us back to the Stone Age? Do our cash systems, uh, our currency systems survive in some way, shape, or form or not? And it's less about building a, s- a sustainable society, sustainable businesses than survivable businesses. We're, we're, we're not a very durable society right now. And so I, I see lots of challenges ahead here. We, we have some breathing room, but we have lots of things that can go wrong at the same time. So we always have to have our, our eyes wide open. I don't think that we're moving into a dystopian future. And, and I, I certainly don't believe in utopias because I think that, that that's all a fantasy. Uh, I think we can move into a, a better grade of society, but uh, it's going to take a whole lot of work, though. Now, I, I was reading a paper that you wrote, I think a year ago, a talking points uh, regarding banking. And one of your points is by 2025, the largest banks will be tech companies. Do you mean tech companies or will banks morph into becoming tech companies in some cases? So it's a great question because... Um, 
the tech companies may actually take over the banks, depending on, on how the banking laws work and everything. But And depending on what we refer to as a bank in the future, um, their definitions may in, indeed change along the way. But can we can we can we do all of our loans online and if we can do them online then is it really a bank that we're dealing with or a tech company that we're dealing with so it raises raises lots lots of questions and uh why what's what's the role of the bank then um in in our lives so right now there's a little over 90,000 branch banks in the United States uh, scattered out throughout the country here and, and we've been closing branch banks at the rate of roughly a thousand a year, roughly three a day branch banks that we're closing. But at that rate, we, we've still got a, like a 90 year supply. But once we're able to do everything on our phone or on our watch or whatever our device might happen to be, why do we need the real estate? And I, w- I was actually working with one of the large federal banks, uh, their board of directors last last week. And we're, we're getting at that the heart of that question is there something that the banking industry can come up with that makes makes a valid point how we can justify this real estate is there some function that these uh, branch banks can provide that they currently don't that can justify their existence and so it was an open-ended question we didn't get any real good answers for that but (laughs) i think that's that's kind of at the heart of uh, see on, on one hand these things create a lot of problems, a lot of industry problems. On the other hand, they create opportunities. So some some entrepreneur is is out there right now looking at, okay, how do we use branch banks? Because there's going to be a whole hell of a lot of available branch banks in the future. What can we do with those? What what business would logically fit into those that we can just uh, take those over and run with it? And I, th- I think that becomes a really good question. That's I, essentially talking about a successor to the current bank, though. Yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe. Um, but it, it could also be something that gets started and gets bought by the existing banking industry that uh, gets incorporated into it. So what does the existing banking industry look like um, you know, 10 years from now, 20 years from now? I think it looks vastly different than it does today. Um, the the entrepreneurial world is out there, and a lot of they're always attracted to where the money's going, and so they're looking at individual revenue streams and how do I peel off that revenue stream and put that money into my company's pocket as opposed to their pocket, and, and that's true with the banking world and it's the healthcare world and education, and it go down the line, and you can you can see the the, the fintech entrepreneurs are out there alive and well and trying to figure out how to change the dynamics of doing business. I, th- I think it's fascinating and exciting and also scary all at the same time. So, Well, you uh, see that clearly with home mortgages, which used to be owned by traditional banks as recently as 10 years ago. It's right. now primarily owned by fintechs like Rocket Mortgage. And yeah. part of the reason for that is speed. Rocket Mortgage says it can approve uh, most mortgage applications within a day or so. I, it's, I think they have a time guarantee that's even shorter than that. And notice they say most. They don't say all. Ask your bank or your credit union, can you approve my mortgage application? I've been doing business with you for 30 years. Can you approve my mortgage application today? 
they'd laugh at you, maybe hang up. <laughs> just No way, dude, come back next month. And, and then they wonder why they're losing this ha traditional lucrative market. Well, you're just not keeping up with the demands of consumers today. Yesterday's consumers were happy waiting a month. Today's consumer wants to know today. Yeah, exactly. So part of the, the auto industry, uh, the big question in the auto industry is, will, will individuals own their own autonomous cars or, or won't they? I tend to lean on, on the side of, I think uh, people are going to own fleets of cars. And if I don't have to own my own car, by all means, I can avoid all of these costs associated with that, all the repair work and all the um, licensing requirements and all of the hassles of owning a car. And it, it tra we transition from this just-in-case mindset. I have a car in my garage just in case I need to go somewhere to a just-in-time mindset. I can summon a vehicle at any time that I need it. But then if you if you start thinking about how all of this starts to evolve, that the autonomous vehicles, I think, become much more than than just uh, a form of transportation. I think they start replacing our businesses so that we have driverless mobile businesses. I think the food truck industry right now is paving the way for a much larger retail industry where rather than trying to get customers to come to your business, then in a mobile world, you go to where the customers are. So it, Every time there's a softball tournament, you can show up there and do business. Anytime there's a parade down Main Street, you show up and do business there. Anytime there's a gathering of people, you can just you can have your your little convenience store, and whether it's a hair shop and whether it's a a, a mo mobile dog grooming place or it's a even a mobile bank. Now, mobile banks, I think, get real interesting because we have places, geographical areas of the the country that are becoming known as banking deserts. These are sparsely populated areas of the country that where you may have to drive 100 miles to get to the closest bank. So having a mobile bank that could actually, somebody needs to deal with somebody at the bank, they, the, the mobile bank drives out there and works with that person, and it might, might be able to have the person go inside of the vehicle, and then there is a, a live screen where um, where it feels like you're in the same room with a loan officer or with a person official from the bank, and you can actually have a person-to-person -person conversation with somebody that might be a thousand miles away. Then that that type of business will evolve. Is that going to replace traditional banks? Will it be an add-on to tra traditional banks? Um, is is it even a viable possibility? Am I just making this stuff up? Oh, no, no, you're not making it up. Uh, Hurricane Sandy, if you remember that, that was, I believe, 2012 on the East Coast, well, essentially wiped out electricity in a state like New Jersey for, in many towns, as much as a week. I know several big banks had mobile trailers or, or I'm not, trucks that they brought in where they could do ATM transactions because the ATMs weren't working, for instance. Okay. These were the biggest of the big banks, but they had these mobile devices that they brought in and could do basic basic banking chores. Could they handle a, a mortgage application? No, but go online. Well, you couldn't get online either. <laughs> but, yeah. uh, so that, that technology exists and, 
And if you throw in one of these smart ATMs, which you also talk about in your paper, essentially a video teller machine, and you have some kind of Wi-Fi connection in, in, the, in the mobile bank, man, you got yourself a bank. You can do pretty much anything you want. And thus the end of those banking deserts, which I, the number in your paper, I think from 2017 is 1100 banking deserts, which is a lot. And, and the number is growing as banks and credit unions, mainly banks say, well, you know, we can't make any money, Alabama or wherever. Yeah. And, and so, so then if, if, we, if we think about uh, driverless mobile businesses, I like to think in terms of the shopping mall of the future. It's just being this giant warehouse and every morning open up and all these mobile businesses pull in and set up shop. And it's a, a different configuration, different grouping of businesses every day, which makes kind of a more exciting um, environment for shopping because you never know what you're going to run into there. That uh, having having a mobile business like that, the business itself becomes financeable then, and people will own those mobile businesses. They very likely they're not going to to rent those. They may may come with pieces of equipment like a pizza making machine or some other pastry making machine or something like that. So they go around and have these these robots inside these vehicles that are making things, and and you have the the merchant there that's dealing with customers. And uh, but everything else inside is automated. Now, those uh, financing those type of move, moving businesses, I think, has the potential to become a really big, big business in the future. I mean, it's the same as financing flying drones. I mean, we we don't own our own cars. Maybe we own our own drones. Uh, how does how does that play in? And and so. Every industry is looking for the killer app, you know, the, the killer, the, the big use, the, the, the thing you're making your most money on. Car loans have been a, a big source of revenue for banks for a long time. So then what becomes the next killer app for the banking industry? And uh, I'm not sure that it's, it's raising its head just yet, but I, I think there's a few things that uh, probable things around the corner, though. Now, your message for credit unions in particular is, is in a way, fundamentally dystopian, where one of the things you're saying is that the branch is going away. It will take time, but it's going away. But credit unions pride themselves on their branches, pride themselves on the customer service in branch. But if no one's coming in to enjoy that customer service, it ain't going to work for you anymore. Is, is that what you're saying? Yeah, and and some of the things can work exactly the opposite of what we're anticipating as well. Maybe because we can do everything electronically, suddenly we start craving that human interaction and we go the opposite direction. We, we have uh, large segments of society that start abandoning their electronic communication systems and uh, would much rather go and hang out with a live person rather than do, do something electronically. There's, there's all kinds of reasons things can, can go wrong. But uh, you know, based on some of the things that we're seeing today, uh, we, can, we can gain so much more efficiency by, by just doing things virtually rather than uh, showing up in person. I mean, I, the number of things I can accomplish on a daily basis go up exponentially if I can do everything virtually. And, and so that looks 
in my mind, like it's much more appealing than 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 going out and meeting with somebody personally. Uh, I I have this uh, the, this question I, I wrestle with quite a bit is how long will it be before meeting somebody virtually is as good as meeting somebody in person? Uh, now I think this is real really interesting kind of test question because we're we're still not there. I mean, meeting somebody personally in person there's there's lots of um, context for, for that person there's the, the way they carry themselves that's the body language the the different energies they're they're giving off all of these things are different ways of communicating if there's beads of sweat developing on their brow you, know, you can tell different things about people just by reading uh, the little subtle mm. cues that you're you're witnessing in person and uh, and so then she asked that question of how long before a virtual meeting is as good as meeting somebody in person. The, the, the thing I'm thinking about is that once, once it's as good as meeting somebody in person, I still don't think we're gonna go there. I think we're still gonna to wanna to meet people in person. I, I think it changes though when meeting somebody virtually is actually better than meeting somebody in person. So what constitutes better? If, I don't know, if I have digital readouts of all kinds of things happening on this person, maybe that constitutes better. I, I, I don't have a good answer for that just yet, but I, I think that's, that's kind of the direction that technology is going and the entrepreneurs are looking at that as how do we make that experience not just as good as meeting somebody in person, but how do we make it actually better? Uh, that's part of what's going on with chatbots, which... Yeah are trying to make interactions with machines more fulfilling than interactions with real people. And truth is, if you ask a well-trained chat box, a technical banking transaction question, you'll probably get a more accurate answer than if you ask the average uh, teller. Yeah. yeah. And, well, Even if the chat box, box says, hey, no idea, can't help you on that, which <laughs> Alexa and Google both tell me every day. Yeah, yeah. The, so, so when I when I talk about these devices that we're talking back and forth to, uh, whether it's Cortana or Alexis or Siri or whatever it might be, we're, we're actually building the brains of the robot because we're uh, it's learning as it goes. So the the more interaction that we have with it, the the more basis of information and context and everything that we're we're actually building what I refer to as the brains of the robot. Now the 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 robot itself might be a driverless car it might be a drone and so this this thing that it's attached to could could be uh, an actual robot or it could be an atm or it could be um, any, any number of other devices uh, but we're building that that overall piece of intelligence that will be guiding lots of things in the future and uh and so the more interaction that we have with it, the, the smarter it's going to get over time. One thing I keep wondering about is banking as we know it is a post-World War II invention. Uh, yeah. Before World War II, banking was essentially something that was there only for the social and economic elites. Ordinary people got paid in cash at the factory. Uh, they paid their bills in cash if they needed to pay a bill some other way, maybe they bought a money order at the post office. And uh, they, didn't, they didn't have banking relationships. And then in the 50s, 
and really catching steam in the 60s, suddenly banking relationships became uh, a necessity for middle class life. I remember as a college kid in the, in the 60s, one of the first things you did was you opened a banking account. It's uh, right. uh, cause your parents told you to. Uh, so right. <laughs> somehow you feel like you, you had arrived. Yeah. But are we going back to a, a pre world war II place where there's still banks for the 1%, the 2%, the, the economic elite and the rest of the people get by with, with non-banks with things like Venmo. There's plenty of ways to transfer money today. Yeah. So we, in, in some of my presentations, I'll I'll do what it, what a bank robber looked like in like in 1900. You know, those were guys with guns, and today what a bank robber looks like is is really like a hacker. So then, what does a bank robber look like in in 2050? That's it's still a bit of a mystery, but it does get to this this idea of the changing nature, the changing face of, of the banking world. Now in the the 2007-2008 era, there was a lot of people that got really angry with the banking industry. Um, and and that that anger is what manifested itself as uh, in the form of cryptocurrencies, and that's what came out of it. Now, most people don't realize, but we did have different forms of digital currencies, and uh, essentially the forerunners of cryptocurrencies and the in the early 2000s, but it wasn't until uh, Bitcoin came out in 2009 that, um, that things started to transition. And, and so that, that, I think, is one of the big transforming factors that's going to affect the banking industry. You know, the banks themselves don't know what to do with cryptocurrencies, even though there's, um, we're, we're getting to the point of having currency agnostic debit cards where we uh, load uh, Bitcoin onto the cards, we can load Litecoin or Namecoin or Dogecoin or whatever it might be onto these cards, and then we, we can just use them uh, to go buy stuff at Walmart or any place we want to. And uh, the banking world still doesn't know what to think of these things, and it still is uh, uh, standoffish, and, and they're they're not allowed to deal with them now. Now the the crypto world is evolving quickly. Now what what it'll look like, you know, ten years from now, twenty years from now is, is going to be vastly different than today. And will it still exist in the same form? And it, it I mean, it is There is the potential that all of our existing cryptocurrency today can go away. But if it does, if if somebody actually figures out how to destroy all of the cryptocurrency we have today, I, I actually think it tends to fail forward. I think it evolves into something that's even more difficult to kill in the future. And so I, I don't think that that option goes away. Any so I, I think that the currency itself is, is evolving. Uh, somehow the, the banking world needs to learn how to embrace that as well. If crypto can survive, that puts the lie to a core principle that bankers believe in, which is that it takes a government regulated system to impose order on financial transactions. And obviously the crypto people think that's a ludicrous belief, but if you 
talk to bankers, bankers on boards of directors, et cetera. You ask them, they'll say, no, you need government control. See, the cryptocurrencies are mined into existence. Well, uh, a lot of them are. They're mined into existence and the traditional national currencies are loaned into existence. I mean, it's a couple different approaches to scarcity. I mean, you have to have some form of scarcity uh, for currencies to have any value. They're vastly different in how they approach that. So it looks to me like most national currencies are going to start incorporating lots of cryptocurrency features into them. Um, and, and some countries are, are opting to go to their own cryptocurrencies, although they're implementing them badly. There's going to be a lot of growing pains around that. So it's, it's, it's always, in my mind, still a mystery as to how this, this shakes out as to who the winners and losers are going to be in the process. But it, we're going through this massive transition. And uh, there, I, th I think there's a, a brighter future on the other side, though. Um, but that brighter future doesn't necessarily mean a brighter future for, for banking. No, not necessarily. Before we go, the CU 2.0 podcast is looking for a few good sponsors to help us spread the word about the digital transformation of credit unions. You could be one of them. Contact Robert McGarvey for details at rjmcgarvey at gmail.com. First come, first serve. Again, that's rjmcgarvey at gmail.com. The CU 2.0 podcast.